This Parsha podcast is dedicated towards the merit of the success of our boys, our men, our men and women who are at war in Gaza. Of course, we are praying for them and our hearts are with them. We hope they have tremendous success in their efforts and they all come back safe and sound and healthy and stable and strong in every way. Of course, it's a very difficult time for our nation. And as I mentioned this week after week, it's important for us, even though we may be far away, we may be in the United States, we're safe relatively. It's important for us to make sure that we too are participating in this battle, that we too are bearing the burden of our brethren, that we're feeling their pain, that we're empathizing with them, that we're thinking about all the pain and tragedy that our brethren underwent and are undergoing. And as I mentioned this the past two weeks, I want to say it again. We wage war on two fronts. The first war that our nation ever waged against Amalek, chapter 17 of Exodus. It happened on two fronts. Joshua was fighting the physical war down below, and Moshe was fighting the spiritual battle on top of the mountain. Aaron on one side, Hur on the other, lifting his hands and praying for the success of the triumph over Amalek. And that's how we wage wars. And even today, if we're far away and we can't participate in an active way, it's imperative that we do whatever we can on a spiritual dimension to help towards this effort. So, of course, our Torah study together today is going to be dedicated in the merit of the success of this war. We hope that it goes well. Of course, it's, you know, before the round invasion and no one knows how this is going to turn out. So we're dedicating our Torah. We're contributing a bit, so to speak, on the spiritual dimension towards the success of this initiative of this battle. I will tell you something which I didn't tell you in the past. My grandfather, a blessed memory, he wrote many, many books. But in addition to what we have published, in the unpublished manuscripts, there are more writings than have been published. He was very voluminous in his output. And I came across something in his manuscripts, which stuck with me, and I just remembered it in the context of this whole idea that we have to be participants in this battle. He was writing a letter talking about the the imperative to always have big dreams and big plans and ambitious ideas and creative ideas in your spiritual development. And he said something really interesting. He endorsed an idea that I've never heard in any other context. And we mentioned last week how there's a, a big, healthy debate, a robust, maybe even strident debate over whether or not the yeshiva students should be exempt from the army. And each side has their arguments and the merits of their position. But the the Torah position would be that, well, any battle happens on two fronts. And therefore, the yeshiva students who are studying, they are contributing towards the war effort, even though it may not be perceptible to us. In ancient times, in the times of David, 
when they sent soldiers to war, there were two types of soldiers. There were combat soldiers, combat troops, and there were prayer troops. They would send troops to pray for the success in that battle. If that was true in the times of Moshe, in the times of David, this is how we do it. So yeshiva student, the argument goes, they are participating in the trenches just on the spiritual dimension. Here's the idea. In Israel, as is common with many armies, you have mandatory conscription for three years. And then, periodically, you have reserve duty where the units get back together and they spend a couple of weeks or a month as soldiers making sure that they're ready for war in case they're called up or it, it, it instead of the standing army being limited to just the active, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds who are conscripted until I think the age of 40, everyone does reserve duty. Or I don't know if that's the exact rules, but a lot of people do reserve duty as well. So the bold initiative that my grandfather endorsed was that, well, if the yeshiva students are soldiers, are spiritual soldiers for the benefit of the nation, maybe even after they leave the yeshiva, and they're off, and they get married and start families and move on from the yeshiva, maybe they could come back a couple of weeks a year for reserve duty. Why not? If the soldiers could do it, if they could leave their homes, their families, their jobs, their lives to come back and fight or and be participants in the army for the nation, the spiritual soldiers, maybe they should do that as well. That was the idea that he really liked and he endorsed in his letter. But I'm thinking, well, the reservists, they come up periodically, but then there's a mobilization in a time of war. They get called up. Now it's a time of war. So all of us who have had the great fortune of spending time in yeshiva, we're all being called up. We're all being mobilized for the effort. So all of us should try to do whatever we can to increase our Torah study and our prayer and our recitation of the Psalms of Tehillim. Prayer and Torah are the sword and the bow of Jacob. And with that, hopefully we can contribute our part towards the success of this war. It's Parshas Lech Lecha. We meet Abraham. This is the beginning, really, of the story of the Jewish people. And what a story it is. Abraham is told to leave, leave his homeland, leave the house of his father, leave his birthplace, and travel to the unknown. And he travels. And he takes with him a retinue, Lot, his brother-in-law slash nephew, Sarah, Sarias, she's called his wife, and all the souls that they made in Haran. And they travel. And they arrive in Canaan, and they travel all over Canaan. And although God promises that things will be good in Canaan, there's a famine, and he has to flee. And then his wife is accosted. It's a whole story. Abraham's traveling all over Canaan, has to go down to Egypt. His wife is kidnapped. She is eventually returned, and they leave from Egypt, and they ascend back to the land of Canaan with great wealth. And the first of the three segments that I want to cover today talk about the departure of Lot from Abraham. Lot is Abraham's student, 
confidant, psychic of sorts, his relative. Lot is Sarah's brother, and he's also Abraham's nephew because Abraham married his niece. Sarah was Abraham's niece. And they're traveling together, and he seems to be with him all along, step by step. But now when they ascend back from Egypt, Lot has been enriched. And we have two massive camps, the camp of Abraham and the camp of Lot. And there is conflict. There is friction between these two. And there's insufficient grazing area for both of these flocks, the flock of Abraham and the flock of Lot. And there's a fight. There's a conflict. The shepherds of Lot and the shepherds of Abraham are at odds. And Abraham tries to resolve this tension. And he tells Lot, let's not fight. After all, we're like brothers between me and between you and between my shepherds and your shepherds. We're like brothers. It's improper for us to fight. Let's separate in an amicable fashion. There's a lot of land. Let's separate from each other. You go right, I go left. You go left, I go right. And Lot makes a fateful decision. The verse tells us, this is chapter 13, verse 10. Lot lifted his eyes and he saw the Kikar Hayardin, the plain of the Jordan. It's a paradise. He sees the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they are like the garden of Hashem. They're like the garden of Eden. They're really literal paradise. And Lot decides to go there. And they depart. And Lot and Abraham are no longer together. Now, Lot makes several reappearances in the Torah. He's going to be captured. Abraham will save him. And of course, in Netflix's Parsha, the time expires for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God sends angels to overturn said cities. And they spare Lot. They save Lot and his wife, at least temporarily, and his two daughters. His wife turns around. She turns into a pillar of salt. And Lot is saved with his daughters. They end up in a cave. And something quite ignominious happens where they are under the impression that the world is over, it's time to repopulate, even if that means that we become pregnant from our father. Lot is inebriated, and Lot, in successive nights, he cohabits with his daughters, producing the bastard sons that are the namesakes of the eponymous nations of Ammon and Moab. So Lot's going to make some reappearances, but now his time with Abraham is up. He has made his choice. He has chosen to head in one direction, and he heads to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you pay careful attention to these precise words of the verse, you find something very, very interesting. As we know, certainly this year, we're trying to go a little bit deeper behind the scenes, beneath the text of Scripture, of the Torah. When we read a verse, we have to realize that there are no extra words. And every apparent extra word, it must be there for a reason. It's not extra. And thus, when we find a word that seems to be extra, we're actually discovering a lesson. Lot has to choose. 
Abraham tells him, go right, I go left, go left, I go right. You choose, it's up to you. It's possible, maybe, that Lo could have said, no, 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 Abraham, I'll stay with you, and we'll resolve our conflicts. Lo didn't make that choice, much to his eternal ignominy. He chooses to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And why? The verse tells us, chapter 13, verse 10. He looked towards the plain of the Jordan, and it was all fertile. And then the verse adds, before God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the Garden of God. It was paradise. Now, of course, this is a spoiler alert. In that sweet parsha, God will overturn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He will rain fire and sulfur upon those cities, and they will no longer look like an idyllic paradise. And the verse stresses that when Lot made a decision to move there, it was before Sodom and Gomorrah were turned into a hellhole, an apocalyptic hellhole, a smoldering canyon of ruin. Don't think that Lot went there after it was completely destroyed. Oh no, it was before God destroyed it. And before it was destroyed, it was paradise. Now the question is, well, obviously, if Lot went there, he didn't go there after it was completely uninhabitable. Why does the verse need to stress that Lot went to Sodom, to Sodom and Gomorrah, before it was destroyed, when it was like a garden of Eden? There are some extra words there. And there cannot be extra words in the Torah. So the answer, perhaps, is that Lot, Lot understood even when he went there, that its days were numbered. Lot, after all, was a student of Abraham. As we shall see later on in his narrative, Lot does kindness, almost like Abraham does. Lot baits matzah because it's Pesach. He obviously has a deep understanding of the Abrahamic ideals. Lot was able to interact with angels. He wasn't a dunderhead. He wasn't a simpleton. He wasn't just a layperson who didn't have any understanding. When Rashi interprets the words that when Abraham tells Lot were brothers, Rashi says that they were similar. They had a similar visage, that a similar countenance. On a spiritual level, that means that Lot and Abraham looked similar physically. But because the physical is just a manifestation of the spiritual, what this actually means is that Lot was spiritually similar to Abraham. We do find that Abraham excels. He's the paragon of kindness. And Lot also does Abrahamic kindness. Abraham is the initiator, really, of modern monotheism, 
faith, really. And Lot celebrates Passover by making matzah. Passover, after all, is the festival of faith. Abraham's qualities and Abraham's greatness is in some way manifested in Lot. We can call Lot a poor man's Abraham. Certainly after all of his assets were destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah. But Lot was not a simpleton. He was sophisticated. And the verse tells us that he chose Sodom and Gomorrah before it was destroyed. Lot understood that the corruption and the sinfulness that was present in Sodom and Gomorrah cannot be tolerated and will not endure much longer. He knew that the days were numbered. He knew it was a matter of time before it was destroyed. And he went there nonetheless. He went there, why? Because it was not yet destroyed. It was before the destruction. And Lot said, maybe we can make hay while the sun still shines. We can still enjoy the music on the deck of the Titanic for another hour or so. That was Lot's calculus. Lot was not someone who didn't know that the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah was destruction. He knew it. And he went there knowing that. Because now, it's still now. It's still paradise. Let's grab as much of paradise as we can before the destruction. Now, our sages tell us that Lot, he is representative on an allegorical level to the Yetzirah, to the evil inclination. And we'll see more about that in segment number two of this week's Parsha podcast. When the Torah reveals a quality that is featured in Lot, a negative quality, a negative penchant, a negative tendency. That is a revelation about the character and the ideals and the modi operandi of the Yetzirah, the evil clinician that we all harbor within us. Part of the philosophy of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, part of the ways that it gets us to sin is not by ignorance None of us think that we will be here on this world with our soul cased inside our body forever. You have all these people getting all those blood transfusions, longevity, outlive. Not a bad book, I must say. You may live a little bit longer, but everyone knows that our time here is temporary. The party's going to end. And we all have a tendency to be a bit like Lot. Yes, the party will end. Yes, Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed. But what a rollicking party it is right now. Let's maybe squeeze in some fun before the party ends. I've gotten into big trouble for saying this in the past. And every time I say it, they say, Rabbi, you're being way too insensitive. So this is going to be a little bit of a trigger, maybe, for, for some of y'all. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing buttons. I'm trying to elicit a reaction. You've been warned. Disclaimer. 
This is why I'm against the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Ooh, you didn't, you didn't think you'd hear that opinion on the Parsha podcast. This idea that someone's about to die. Let's give them a good time. Let them enjoy the physical life a little bit more. Party a little bit before the lights go out. That is Lot. That is the Yetzirah. That is this, let's go to Sodom and Gomorrah to party. Now, of course, you know, we know that, you know, taking a kid to Disneyland is not the same thing as going to a sinful place like Sodom and Gomorrah. Obviously. But the point, the, the, the principle that we're being taught over here is that we have to realize that our current orientation is not Permanent. It's not eternal. And we have to think about what's going to be in the future. And we cannot only think about the short term, our tenure in this world, when we're housed, when our soul is housed, in a physical body, and when the consequences of our spiritual actions do not redound you could go a whole lifetime without studying Torah, without doing mitzvahs, and you won't really feel much. The consequences, the consequences of our spiritual actions, they reverberate for eternity, but not at this point. We don't feel it. It's before there's any destruction, before there's any turmoil, before the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are exacted upon by God. Lot knew that there was judgment. He knew there was an accounting and a reckoning that will happen to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew that. And he went nonetheless. The Talmud tells us that one of the ways that a person can avoid sinning is by remembering the day of death. You remember that your tenure here is not forever. Your time here is limited. You will be ushered to a different world. Your soul will be extricated from your body. Your body will be buried, maybe even planted for the future, for the resurrection. And you will have to give an accounting and a reckoning before God. That's a terrifying notion. And it's a very productive thing to think about, our sages tell us, because that makes a person more likely to try to improve their behavior and live a life that they can defend before the Almighty, before the heavenly tribunal. So if you think about the day that you're going to die, you'll live a more productive and uplifting and meaningful and righteous life. Lot knew that Sodom and Gomorrah will die. And he says, let's go. It ain't dead yet. It's still a party house. Let's go and grab some while we still can. That is how the Yitzharah operates. And it's not just Lot who is emblematic of this attitude. We are going to meet in a few weeks the very different twins Jacob and Esav. Chapter 25, verse 23 of Genesis, Esav says, 
I'm going to die. And why do I need this birthright? And the commentaries point out that Asaf is behaving exactly like Lot. When he realized that he's going to die sometime in the future, he said, well, why do I need all this spiritual stuff? Let me have the bowl of red, red, red stuff. It's imperative for us to, A, realize that we're not going to be here forever. But even once you realize that, it's important to make the right choice. Lot realized that. Asav realized that as well. They're both representatives. They're both on an allegorical level, representing the Eight Sahara. And there is a tendency that when a person is about to die or they even think and contemplate about their death, instead of trying to pursue more righteousness, more mitzvos, more food for their soul forever, they want to go to Disneyland. They want to go uh, do their bucket list. What a terrible idea, a bucket list. Before you kick the bucket, all the things you have to do. That's an attitude that looks at this world as the goal, trying to have as much pleasure as possible before you die. And that is the handiwork of the Sahara. We're all going to die. Nothing wrong with that. What we choose to do about that knowledge determines if we are like Lot or Esav, or we are the righteous people that the Mishnah is addressing by telling us, ruminate upon your death. Remember that you are temporary in this world and repent and live up to that values, those values accordingly. That's segment one. Let's go to segment number two. Lot and Abraham part from each other. Rashi tells us that when Lot departed Abraham, Abraham's prophecy was restored. Lot prevented Abraham from prophecy. And Abraham, after there was a bit of a scuffle, a bit of friction between the shepherds, that is when Abraham took the opportunity to separate himself from Lot. You imagine that Abraham knew that Lot was inhibiting his prophecy. And Abraham did not boot him to begin with. It seems like Abraham's teaching us a lesson. Even if you have a toxic relationship, someone like Lot, who is disrupting your capacity to ascend and to live up to your potential... You don't embarrass them. And you don't lose the brotherhood. Abraham doesn't say, leave and get out of my sight. He says, you are right. I go left, left, I go right. We shouldn't be fine. We're brothers. Oh, and by the way, after they separate, when Lot was in distress, Abraham came to his aid. That's how you get rid of toxic relationships. But we're trying to go a little bit deeper. As we know, the Torah is understandable on all sorts of levels. There are many dimensions to Torah. We're told that there are 70 facets of Torah and 50 layers of understanding of Torah. And there is Pshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod. There's the Pshat, the simple interpretation. 
detached as we would call it. And then there's the allegory, the remes, where the Torah is saying things on one level, but on a different dimension, there is some sort of allegory that's being conveyed. And segment number two is discussing this event on an allegorical level. There's an enterprising righteous person, and he has lot in his proximity. And he's trying to separate himself from Lot, from the Yetzirah. In this allegory, Abraham is the soul. Lot is the Yetzirah. How do you delicately separate these two? Says the Zohar, something very beautiful. Abraham says to Lot, let's not fight. Why are we fighting? I don't want to fight with you. Let's separate. A righteous person is always fighting with the Yitzhah Yitzhah says, do sins. He does mitzvahs. Yitzhah says, have bad character. He tries to fix his character. Yitzhah says, don't study. He goes to the academy and goes to study. He's always battling the Yitzhah And then he says, why don't you just separate from me? Let's not fight. Separate. You go left. And I'll go right. You go right. And I will go left. If a person is committed to fighting the Yitzhah and they're always fighting, they're always fighting in every dimension of a person's life, he is, he or she is aware that there's a constant battle between the Yitzhah and themselves and their spiritual standing and destiny is imperiled, and they're always on alert, and they're always fighting back. If someone is righteous enough to always be cognizant and aware of the Yitzhah and always fighting, there is a way for them to shake themselves free of the Yitzhah, just as Abraham got rid of the nemesis, Lot, who was in Abraham's proximity. Abraham told Lot, go right, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. Let's separate. If a person is so committed to fighting the Yetzirah, there is a possibility to actually shake yourself free of it. What happened to Lot? What happened in the allegorical level to the Yetzirah? He looks at the Jordan Plains. And he sees the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's full of sinners. Sinners who won't be as problematic as Abraham. Abraham's always fighting with me. What a hassle. I'll go there. And Lot departs from Abraham. This reminded me of the, uh, the old commercials that I used to hear for Lojack. I don't know if that's still in style. But it was like a low-tech way to protect your car from being stolen. It was like a like a lock that they placed upon your wheel. And I remember hearing 
that, oh, the car thieves, they could pick the lock for the low jack. But when they see a low jack on your steering wheel, they say, you know what? The car that's next to you doesn't have the low jack. I'll just, uh, I'll save myself the 60 seconds and I'll go break into that car and steal that one. So that didn't make you impervious to being, to having your car stolen. It just made such a hassle for the thief. What the Zoharia is telling us is just make it such a hassle, hassle for the Yitzharat to fight you. It's uh, it's not worth the pain. And I'll just go to San Gamora. There are plenty of people who won't be fighting and those are much easier targets. If you're so irritating, you're, you're just such a nudnik. You're always fighting and always finicky and never happy. The Yetzirah will just leave. It'll give up. It'll find other fish in the pond. And then what happens then? The following verse is that Abraham was laden. He was very laden. What was he laden with? On the allegorical level, Abraham was laden with righteousness and with Torah and with mitzvos. I found this to be a very beautiful insight. First of all, it's always nice to see this whole notion of, of the Torah being understood on multiple dimensions and levels. Abraham's the soul and Lot's the Yitzharah. And this whole notion, this whole idea that you can free yourself of the Yitzharah by telling it, just go to some other place. Let's separate. Again, provided that there's the prerequisite of you always fighting and always being in conflict. There's always friction which is a positive thing, to always be fighting with the Yetzirah. There comes a point where you can say, I'm, I'm done with you. And the Yetzirah will just give up. What a hassle to deal with. You always find just, okay, I'll just go find someone else. It just gives up. It goes right. You go left. It goes left. You go right. And we'll find other fish. Now, I find this to be very interesting because we don't think of the Yetzirah as having exhaustible powers. If it has infinite powers, if it has unlimited resources, if there's no scarcity for the Yetzara, it could do both. It could fight the people and, or it could cause the people of Sodom and Gomorrah to sin and you the righteous. Moreover, as we know, as we know, the more righteous a person is, the Talmud tells us, the stronger their Yetzara. Kol ha-gadol mechavero yitzro gadol so what's this idea that the Yitzhar will leave you? I don't understand this point of the Zohar. It's possible that when someone becomes greater, their Yitzhara is greater, but the other Yitzhara, the less sophisticated Yitzhara, that one actually leaves and goes and picks on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Meaning that as you elevate, as you transcend from level to level, there is a type of Yetzirah that you lose, that just gives up on you. You have the spiritual low jack. It leaves and it goes to pick on others, but you are upgraded. Your soul is elevated now. You're on a higher spiritual level. Oh, and you also have a more spiritual Yetzirah that fills the place, fills the void of the Yetzirah that departed and went to Sodom and Gomorrah. And finally, the third segment, the deepest one. We went deep and a bit deeper. And now we're going the deepest idea. It's so deep that there will be parts of it that I will have to tell you, listen, this is just too deep for me, too advanced. It's beyond me. It's over my head. It's esoterica. 
It's part of the arcane, understood only by the select few. At the end of our parsha, we have the wrist meal of the circumcision. God tells Abraham, become perfect, walk with me. He changes his name. He gives him the covenant of the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. He says, I'll always be with you. He promises him that Isaac will be born. And he gives them the first mitzvah that every Jewish boy does, the mitzvah of circumcision, the eternal bond that we have with the Almighty that is etched into us, the eternal covenant between the Jew and the Creator. First thing I noticed, chapter 17, verse 3, the verse says that Abraham fell on his face, which is a common motif in the Torah, when there's prophecy and God arrives, you fall on your face. And that's what the Ramban says. Well, you have prophecy. It's an intense experience. You can't handle it and you fall. But Rashi says something else. Why is Abraham falling upon his face? Well, the first thing it says is, well, because there's a certain dread, a certain awe of the Shekhinah, of the Divine Presence. And then Rashi adds something Unbelievable. I didn't notice this until this year. Up to the point of the circumcision, Abraham did not have the strength to stand up while he was experiencing prophecy. And he gives an example. Bilam, the idolatrous, non-Jewish prophet, he was the verse describes him as he was no fall. He was falling down. Rashi is implying that after the circumcision, Abram didn't need to fall down. He didn't have the dread, the awe of the Shekhinah, of the divine presence. He was able to stand up. But this verse 3 is before the circumcision. Abram does the circumcision at the end of the parsha. And that's why Abraham fell, fell on his face. He was then called Abraham, of course. So to me, this was very interesting because this tells us that circumcision, it gives a person spiritual fortitude to be able to absorb divine revelation. And I had a an idea to kind of see another example of this. Before the Exodus, Parsha's bow, we've talked about this in previous years of the Parsha podcast, the nation did two mitzvahs before they left Egypt. Two mitzvahs that have blood in them, the blood of the Paschal offering and the blood of the brismila of the circumcision. And Rashi tells us that the nation was supposed to leave and they were barren, they were empty, they were naked from mitzvos, and they had no merit to leave, and therefore God gave them two mitzvos, the blood of the Pesach offering, and the blood of the circumcision, the brismila, and that was the merits that enabled them to leave Egypt. But I had an idea. Maybe there's another wrinkle here. If Rashi tells us that an uncircumcised person does not have the strength to withstand a spiritual revelation of God, 
And that's why Abraham fell on his face because before the circumcision, he wasn't able to handle it. He wasn't able to bear it. Maybe this is why specifically the mitzvah of circumcision had to be done before the Exodus. Because after all, the Exodus, that was a revelation. The firstborn died at the very same moment because there was a revelation of God throughout Egypt. God himself, not an angel, appeared. And those who were spiritually sensitive, namely the firstborn, they couldn't handle it. And the nation, our nation, wouldn't either be able to handle it if they were uncircumcised. And that's why specifically they had to receive the midst of circumcision in order to be able to bear, to withstand the revelation of God at the Exodus. That was an idea, but I wanted to really share with you a midrash that talks about the circumcision. The midrash says, quotes a verse in Psalms, Sod Hashem Lireof, the secret of God is for those who fear Him. This is Psalms chapter 25, verse 14. Ubriso in His covenant to inform them. So the verse starts off talking about a secret of God. We don't know what that means. And then it ends off with the covenant. Says the Midrash, the way to interpret this verse is that the secret of God is the covenant of the circumcision. We think of the circumcision as some sort of surgery, some sort of procedure. The Midrash tells us, this is in Bereshis Rabbah 49.2, that circumcision is a secret of God. And then the Midrash elaborates that, how do we know that it's a secret? Because God didn't reveal it for 20 generations, 10 from Adam to Noah, 10 from Noah to Abraham. For 20 generations, no one knew the secret. Now, the question, of course, we're all asking is, what's the secret? What is secretive about the circumcision? What is hiding beneath this process, this procedure, that would qualify it as a secret? I don't know if this is the actual answer, but uh, that never stopped me from speculating. So I want to speculate that maybe this is the secret. Of course, the location of the circumcision, the covenant, that's at the point of a man's body where their most primal and perhaps base selves is manifested. If you look at the Ramban in his commentary, The Ramban says it's not a coincidence. The reason why we have the covenant of God there, it's to remind us that this force that we have within us should only be used in a proper way, in a mitzvah fashion. We shouldn't allow our impulses and our desires and our 
lusts to destroy us. And we know there are many, many, many men throughout history that were destroyed because of this. And that's why, says the Ramban, that's why it's placed at that location. I think there's another angle to this. In man's ideal state, the verse tells us, man is created in the image of God. Now, what that means, I don't know. All I know is that basically all of our Kabbalistic Torah orients around this verse. Man is created in the image of God. What that means, I don't know what that means. But it tells us that on some dimension, there is some commonality, there is some overlap between man and God. Maybe what this means is that God, of course, is a creator. God created the whole world, the whole universe. But really, God created man. Because the whole reason why God created the universe and the world and the stars, and the water, and the land, and the animals. It's all as an arena for man. The Talmud tells us, of course, that really the whole world, all the creations, is all there to service man and to test man and to be an arena where man can exhibit their free will. And God first prepares the environment, and only then does God create man, which is why man is created last. When we think of God as a creator, To a certain extent, we can say that God is the creator of man. You know who else can create man? Man. What this means is that, again, of course, it's not the same thing. On some level, on some dimension, in the image of God is man. God created man. And man can create man. In which area are we most similar to God? In which area are we like a creator? In our ability to procreate. Our highest achievement that we can have is that we too can create another human. The Rabban tells us that this is the area where men are challenged more than any other place. It's no surprise. Wherever you have great capacity for spiritual greatness, there must be an equal counterbalance of capacity for destruction. And therefore, that's where the Yetzirah targets. The Yetzirah targets strength. It targets our capacity for greatness. And maybe this is the secret. The secret is that in this same location, is both our biggest hamstring, our biggest Achilles heel, and our biggest opportunity. And you may think, well, if I'm going to be in some capacity, in some dimension like God, I, I have to ascend to the heavens. I have to do something cosmic. No. Even in the area where you potentially could be the most base, where you could be taken over by the Yetzirah, In that area, there is holiness. In that area, you can find a covenant with God. 
Maybe that's a secret. We're just speculating here. Continues the Midrash. The word sowed, which means secret, the secret of, of God. The word sowed is samach vav dalad. Samach is 60. Vav is 6. Dalad is 4. 60 plus 6 plus 4 is 70. Sowed equals 70. In the merit of 70, we have the 70 souls that descended to Egypt. In the merit of 70, we have the 70 elders, the Sanhedrin. In the merit of 70, we have Moshe who teaches the Torah in 70 languages. All that, our nation, 70 souls, our leaders, the 70 elders, our Torah, our birthright, and our obsession, and our identity as a nation, all that comes in the merit of circumcision. And then the Midrash continues, and it says something which is very secretive. And I don't even know what this means, and I tried to find out. I even spoke to my brother-in-law, Rabbi Botnik. It's very advanced. With the circumcision, the name of God, two names of God, the name Shakai and the name Yotevavke, get etched into a person. This is an idea that you find all over the Kabbalistic literature, not because I'm an expert, but because today, when I'm researching how I'm going to say this in the podcast, I did some searching and I found that everyone talks about it. It's a big deal and no one really explained it the way that I understand, so I'm not going to explain it. But the name Shakai, one of the names of God, the name Havaya, the four-letter ineffable name of God, those two are etched into a person with the circumcision. Of course, these are all secrets. We don't really know what the secret is. But then the Midrash ends with something very beautiful, which I think is much more understandable for us. God tells Abraham, circumcise yourself. Abraham says, well, who should do the circumcision? And God says, well, you do it. So Abraham grabbed a scalpel. And he took the foreskin, and he was coming to cut it. And he was scared. Says the, says the Midrash, God, so to speak, grabbed the scalpel and held it together with Abraham. And Abraham did the procedure, did the circumcision, but God was with him. And it quotes the verse, verse in Nehemiah, chapter 9. You are Hashem, our God, who chose, who selected Abraham. It doesn't say that you forged a covenant with him. Rather, it says, Vercarus Imohabris, you forged a covenant together with him. This covenant wasn't just God and Abraham, it was God together with Abraham. And this teaches us, says the Midrash, that the Almighty was holding, so to speak, Abraham's hand. I found this to be very beautiful. Abraham's doing something which is a bit secret. We don't know what the secret is. But for 20 generations, no one knew the secret. There's something very mysterious 
and deep being done over here. And Abraham's terrified. And for us, it's kind of a routine thing. Yeah, Abraham's a little older. Okay, fine. But it's very routine. This morning, in our shul in Houston, there were two circumcisions. It's common. It's routine. It's not a very complicated surgery. Abraham's worried. He's scared. He needs God to speak to hold his hand. I don't know what exactly Abraham was so terrified, but again, that won't stop us from speculating. We know the Talmud tells us that the foreskin, the Orla, that is symbolic of the Yetzahara. And by circumcising, that is a first step for us trying to remove and excise this Yetzara from upon us. And Abraham was the first one to do it. And we know the firsts are the most difficult. And when I read this Midrash, it reminded me of the erection of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle in the end of the book of Exodus. They did all the work to create all the materials and to build all the vessels and to assemble everything for the Mishkan, but no one was able to lift the beams until Moshe did it. And Rashi tells us that Moshe appeared to be doing it, but really God was helping him. And thus, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was initially assembled. And the question that we posed in a previous Parsha practice is, well, if it's so heavy, if it's so difficult to maneuver, then the fact that Moshe did it, then God helped Moshe, because even Moshe wasn't able to do it by himself. If that was how the Mishkan was initially assembled, what happened the next day and the next time? And they were constantly assembling, disassembling, traveling, and rebuilding the Mishkan. If it was so hard to do it, then how'd they do in the future? And the answer that we gave is that the first time you do something, the Satan, the Yetzirah, is going to mount a fierce resistance. Moshe was about to install a permanent base for God in the world. And the Yetzirah says, this is not going to happen. This is my world. I don't want God here. And the Yetzirah embedded itself, so to speak, in that beam. You ain't going to lift this beam. And no human could have done it. Only Moshe, with God's help. That's the only way to do it. The foreskin, that is a base of the Yetzirah within our body, within our little world. The notion of removing the first time that's done, it's, it's like m- moving the beams. You can't do it. Even Moshe needs God's help. Once it was done once, it's already been established in this world, and then it becomes much easier. All the subsequent times that the Mishnah was assembled and disassembled, any individual, the Levites, the families that were in charge of it, they're able to do it. The first time, no human could have done it. Similarly, Abraham, the first time circumcision was done, the first time that there was this mitzvah, which was symbolic of the excision, the removal of the evil inclination and the establishment of the crown of God in our body, that's like the building of the Mishkan within ourselves. And no no human could have pulled it off by themselves. 
Even Abraham, he understood it was impossible to do it. And God helped him and did it alongside him. What a beautiful idea. I think it's a very valuable idea for us. A, that uh, God aids us in our difficult tasks. The first time we do something, it's the hardest. And also what we actually mean with this covenant. This covenant symbolizes what our nation stands for. This is the mark of the Jew. The Jew stands for the removal of the foreign God, of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination from upon their body, but really from upon the world. And instead, to reestablish the kingdom of God within ourselves and within the world. It's deep. It's even a little deeper than deep. It's maybe the deepest that we can go. We a few times had to raise up our hands in surrender and say that it's way too deep for us. But that's what we try to do over here on the Parsha Podcast. My name is Yaakov Wolby. My email address is rabbiwolbychimba.com. I have a lot of other podcasts that I would love if you would sample. Listen to them. I work really hard, not only on the Parsha Podcast, but also on those other shows. I try to get to every email that's ever sent to me. I respond personally. It does take some time. I'm I'm really embarrassed at the size of my inbox right now. It's bulging. And some of y'all are thinking, well, you haven't got to my email from like a month and a half ago. Please forgive me. I try to get to everyone. Oh, well, I, I, I strive to get to every single email and to respond to myself, but I do like to do it in bunches. As I mentioned last uh, week, the previous week, my docket is, thank God, very, very full. I just uh, finished another chapter for my upcoming book, Please God, yesterday. It's a ton of work. I love every second of it. And I love all of y'all, of course. Have a wonderful day, a splendid week, a sensational Shabbos. Put in your prayers, put in your Torah study for the success of our people. It really, really matters. It really, really makes a difference. And don't take my words about the Make-A-Wish Foundation so seriously. I'm trying to convey a point. Don't get caught up in the example. Don't get the, yeah, we, we, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> you can take the kid to the, to the game. It's, uh, it's okay. But the principle is important for us to remember. Have an amazing, amazing rest of your week. Send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com, and please, God, without the mighty, we'll talk again next week.